You're listening to a sermon originally recorded by Schweitzer United Methodist Church in Springfield, Missouri. Check us out online at sumc.co. And if this sermon blessed you, be sure to share it with someone else. Thank you so much for listening. Now, on to the message. Good morning. How's everyone? All right, I have to do something that I hope isn't too distracting for you. It didn't distract greatly from worship necessarily for me, but I have this OCD tendency here. Yeah. Anyone else? Was that bothering you? Yeah, it was me too. All right. Well, I'm Mark McNelly, and now you know a little bit about me personally if you didn't before. I'm the director of outreach here on campus, and as you noticed from the bumper video, we are entering a new sermon series here on campus that is in alignment with the season of Lent, the 40 days leading up to Easter, and we are excited to go where Jesus went. When we look at the places Jesus went, and there are many, we want to dial into about six. He went to the desert. That's where we're joining Jesus today. He went to a wedding. He went to the crowds. He went to the place of shame. He went to the outsider, and he went to the cross. So I hope you're excited about this Lenten series. You'll invite friends to come and join us as we go through it together on campus. And I remember the desert in a little different way before I became a believer. About nine years ago, I became a believer. Before that, going to the desert looked more like this. So I don't know if you guys have pre-Jesus experiences, but that's Vegas is it's in the desert, right? And so when I think of the desert before my life with Christ, I think of that. But now since I've come to faith in Christ, I think of the desert in a completely different way. How many of you have had desert experiences as Christians? Raise your hand. Okay. What I mean by that, let me define it for you. A desert experience or a wilderness experience is where you just go through something and the spiritual uh, strength can be there for you. God can feel near, but, but man, it just seems like so many other things are fighting against you, that, that the hunger grows in your soul, the emotional and physical Uh, endurance that you need to get through that desert is great. And I think about the deserts that I've gone through, and about five years ago, I went through a very, very hot during the day, cold at night kind of desert experience. Last year, I went through a professional in the ministry. I went through a little bit of a desert season. And I'm here to tell you that we as Christians can not only endure the desert experience, But if we follow Jesus, and we have Jesus deep within us, we can come out of the desert realizing that it was really about getting something out of the desert. That's why God leads us there, is to get something out of it. You see, when I hit the desert, I don't know about you, but my prayers look like, get me out of here, right? I want to get out of the desert, but God wants me to get something out of the desert. It's a completely different mindset. And it takes a perspective shift for us as Christians to understand the desert in that way. Well, we're going to follow Jesus into the desert. We're going to be in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 14. But before we enter there, I want us to look at some things about the desert, uh, some things to note before we jump in with Jesus. First thing is the desert is not a place of divine punishment. You see, a lot lot of people will hit their desert experience and think for some reason that God is punishing them that I've done something wrong, that my sure, uh, no doubt that sin uh, in our lives brings about earthly consequences that can be painful, but the desert experience is something different, and God does not lead us there as a result of our sin. 
we're going to see that Jesus was led into the desert by the Spirit. So God led Jesus into the desert. We look throughout Scripture and we see the desert lining up with how God chooses to work among his people. He calls Abram and Sarah out of their place and into the desert to launch the nation of Israel. Moses spends 40 years in the desert and his call comes from the burning bush. Israel spends all of their time, God working on them in the desert after the Exodus. King David, the time that he spent in the desert was some of the leadership building and faith building times of his life. John the Baptist was a voice crying from the desert. And then we know from Paul, uh, who we just studied, that after his conversion, he is led for three years to spend time with Christ in the desert. The second thing we see that the desert is not is that it is not a place of spiritual weakness. We're going to find out that uh, we get hungry in a lot of ways. We feel the nourishment of our emotional, like I said, life and physical life and relational, maybe financial, vocational. All of these areas could start to feel dry and weak, but our spiritual strength is not taken away from us by God. It is ever present in the desert. The third thing the desert is not a place of is less temptation. We don't get a break from temptation, as we're going to see. When we hit the desert, the enemy realizes that some of that vulnerability is coming around and that it's a time for him to pounce on us. This is where we find Jesus in Luke chapter 4. So let's follow him into the desert. Picking it up in verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. Matthew's account adds to that, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation that that the enemy comes and brings on Jesus after 40 days of fasting from food and water is the temptation to feed his passions. You see, we're in a culture today that really calls us to just indulge ourselves, right? If it feels good, do it. If it's available, even if you got to put it on credit, just consume it, right? If it gives you a little bit of temporary temporary gratification, consume it. You deserve it. Life is hard. You work hard. Whatever sensual passions that, that you have, they're there because God wants you to act on them. Or if you're not a believer, they're there for you to, to just gratify. What Jesus shows us here and what the enemy is trying to do to Jesus is show us that any time our sensual passions, any time our hunger for something in this world, food is a great example, is greater than our hunger for God, then the enemy has won. The enemy has taken God from the throne of our hearts and put something else in his place. Richard Foster wrote a book that uh, I read a couple years ago. I highly recommend it. It's called Celebration of Discipline. And so if you have any reading time this Lent, you could check it out. There's a chapter on fasting that is very, very helpful. We don't have time to do a whole sermon on fasting today, but if you have never fasted from food, I want to invite you to try that. It is one of the great weaknesses I have. Um, uh, Caitlin mentioned last week, why is it that our conversations after we have food 
is about what we're going to eat next and when we're going to eat it. <laughs> and she's right. I am eating every two to three hours, especially as I train. And, and so food has this place a lot of times in my heart and mind that really calls uh, from more of my passion than, than God does in parts of my day for, for sure. And so I am choosing to do a tu- Tuesday night from dinner till Wednesday night from dinner fast from food. So that's what I'm giving up for Lent, uh, one day, 24-hour, two-meal fast. And I feel like in fasting, if all we do is give something up, then we've missed the point. It's not just about giving something up, it's about taking something up. So during that time, I would be at the gym lifting weights and socializing, right, baby? And lifting weights. The the time I would be there, I'm in prayer. Now, that's about 90 minutes, including travel time. And so 90 minutes of uninterrupted, fully devoted time in scripture and prayer with my ADD is very challenging. And so this last Wednesday was Lent and launched my spiritual discipline in this area. And it was challenging for me. I have a few more to go. So if you could pray for me, I would appreciate that. But what is it that you have a passion for that when you get up in the morning, you're already probably thinking about it? Or when you haven't consumed it for a few hours, a half a day, maybe a day, you're thinking, I really need that. It might be an entertainment option that you indulge in. It might be food. It might be pornography. Whatever that is, would you consider during the season of Lent making the statement to the enemy that would have you put that before your passion for God that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. You see, during Wednesday, um, I found myself actually hungering more for scripture than I did any other day this week. Because every time that hunger pang came, I thought to myself, I don't really need to eat right now. I am going to survive. But if I don't feast on the word of God, not just reading scripture, but the words of God that have embedded themselves in my heart and mind, if I don't find a way to cling to those, to trust in them, then I'm toast. That was a pun. Man, it's a tough crowd this morning. But I, I have to realize that I'm just not going to make it. We've got to dial down our deepest passions to a passion for God, and then realize that if that's true for us, we will be completely satisfied. St. Augustine said it this way, it is better to have fewer wants than to have larger resources. We stockpile, right? Even when we're not consuming it, we're setting some back for it later. Augustine is saying, you know what? You don't need more access to things that give you temporary gratification. That's not what you really need. You need to dial down your wants to God. And if that becomes true for you, you're always satisfied. Anytime the enemy comes to tempt you, you're completely content in God. So we'll pick it up in verse five and we'll see how the devil comes at Jesus a second time. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God 
and serve him only. The second temptation that comes at Jesus is the temptation for the positioning of power. Take that seat of authority. Find that way in those relationships around you to be in control. That's the way the enemy would come at you and me. You see, he knew that Jesus knew that someday he would sit on a throne and he would reign over all of creation for eternity. The devil knew this, so he is bringing the ultimate temptation of the positioning of power to Jesus by saying, you don't need to go through the cross for that. You don't need to go through being maligned by uh, all of the people um, that are in religious authority. You don't have to be betrayed by, by one of your friends. You don't, have, you don't have to go through all of that. I'm going to give it to you right now. It's very likely most of us aren't receiving that grandiose of a temptation from Jesus. But the way this plays out in our life is in your home, in your workplace, in your classroom, in your closest relationships, where is it that you just have to be in control? You have to kind of position yourself. You have to make sure that the things are going the way that you want them or somebody is going to pay the price. You want the position of authority at the cost of relationships. This is the temptation that the enemy comes to believers with in a lot of time. The, the temptation to control our environment and grab hold of power that isn't ours to have. The third temptation we pick up in verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written. So the enemy has realized Jesus is quoting scripture, so he decides, I, I know some scripture. Let's play a little textual tennis here, Jesus. So here's Jesus, or here's the enemy quoting scripture to Jesus. He will command angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. This is from uh, Psalm 91, 11, and 12 is where Satan is, is quoting. Jesus responds, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The third temptation that we see has to do with becoming, being a play actor, seeking that, you know, theatrical, over-the-top kind of look at me, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, great, I'm awesome, I need people to pay attention to me. This plays itself out now on social media because we didn't get enough of it in personal interaction. We've got to do it online now. But just the, the kind of everybody take a look at me. And I, I don't know about you, but um, Pastor Bob, I think, mentioned this in his message. It was in his manuscript. And I, I was just floored by how little I recognized that that, for a preacher and a teacher, um, that is a strong temptation. To have my audience end up being... 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11... Okay, I'm not going to count all of you. There's probably over 100 of you here. The temptation for me to preach in a way that solicits some kind of response from you. How much I like it when people come up to me after the message and say, that was, really, that was a really good sermon. 
I have to ask myself a question. This is, the, this is the motivation question for us. And that is, who is my true audience? Do I have a mindset when I stand up in front of hundreds of you that my audience is really God? That I live for his applause, applause, applause. I live for his applause, applause. You see, Lady Gaga was really onto something there. Oh, wait, she wasn't living for God's applause, was she? But in all seriousness, I'm thinking to myself now, as I preach this week, and, uh, and each week I preach after this, who truly is my audience? Is my audience an audience of one? You see, Jesus in the desert absolutely makes it known to Satan and makes, us, makes it known to us through the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures that we have got to live in a way where the only person that matters in our mind about who we truly are is God. You see, Jesus' teaching after this temptation would oftentimes call out the religious leaders for hypocrisy, for play-acting. He would get onto them for doing things for show, giving for show, fasting for show, praying for show. You're all just putting on a show. He would call them, so the Greek word that we get the English word hypocrisy from is the Greek word uh, hypocrites. That's, is that right, Jason? It'll work, okay. <laughs> I should have just gone with it, right? It sounded hypocrites. And the definition of that Greek word is a stage player, a pretender, one who wears a mask. You see, Jesus is telling people all of the stuff you do outwardly, the things that people see and respond to and give you accolades and praise and applause, that's not what truly pleases the heart of God. Jesus understood that it's the inward devotion that pleases the heart of God. You see, he understands that when our heart is right, when our heart is set toward him being our audience of one, then and only then will we be and become our true self. That's when we start to become like Jesus. Because we're, we're listening to the temptations of Satan and we're just thinking, you know what? No, I don't, I don't need to do that. I don't, I don't need to do those kind of things um, like Jesus jumping off the ledge. I don't need to do those kind of things in my religious life. To, to put on a show, to make people think I'm more than I am. I, no, you know, Satan, I don't need to do that. And I'm not going to put the Lord, my God, to the test. So what is our ultimate lesson here um, with following Jesus into the desert? What is it that we learn from how Jesus responds to Satan in the desert? We learn that after 40 days of fasting and prayer, that Jesus was definitely not rushing his way out of the desert, was he? He understood that there was a time that needed to be spent alone with God and in temptation from Satan. What we learn is that's a time in the desert, not to run, but to bow not to flee, 
but to bow our knee to God, to find our place, to commit more and more of our lives to the reading and the embedding of scripture in our heart and mind. Now, I mentioned that Satan uh, responded at the very third temptation. He throws some scripture in there. He twists it. But in all three cases, Jesus responds to Satan straight from Deuteronomy, straight from the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 6 and 8, all three times. Jesus knew the scriptures. My guess is he didn't have a backpack on out there, out there in the desert, you know, with the scrolls in the back, and he's pulling them out, and he's going, hold on, Satan, I got to be with you in a second. You know, like we do with Google, we're looking up verses. Jesus didn't need to do that. Jesus had it right here, and he had it right here. If you recognize that you're going to go into a desert experience, even led by the Holy Spirit into the desert spiritual experience in your Christian walk, you might be there today. I'm asking, will you get to know God through the scriptures in a way that when Satan is even twisting scripture back at you, you know how to respond. You know how to put your trust in God in those moments of weakness. So Neil McCall is a guy here on campus who um, is an 11 o'clock worshiper, right? Uh, Neil has been going through cancer treatment and is really kind of, he says in, his, in the video, he's kind of coming out of the desert, uh, but he's gone through a very, very desert wilderness experience, wilderness experience in his life. And I want you to hear directly from him how he has turned to God during that period. What would you say as a way of encouraging someone that is going through their own desert right now? What I can say is uh, my prayers are with you. Uh, it is terribly difficult to do it all by yourself. Uh, find a prayer partner. Find another Christian that you can trust to discuss how you're feeling with them. And, uh, and, and then... Do the next right thing. Try and think, what does God want me to do at this particular moment, right here, right now in the present? What does God want me to do? And, uh, and then once you've discerned that, do it. For me, I've been in desert types of uh, personal feeling multiple times in my life, and I've had multiple awakenings um, for 30 years I was in active alcoholism and about 13 and a half years ago um, I had had enough my wife had had enough and I did the only thing that I could think of to do and that's go to an AA meeting in a treatment center and you know what they said they said you need to find God and I said, well, I used to know a God, but he didn't like me very much because I didn't like me. And lo and behold, they said, you can come up with your own concept of God. And so as I thought about it, I realized that God was always there, always waiting for me. And when I was the most down, he would pick me up and carry me but it reminds me of my favorite painting, and that's the one on the 
ceiling of the Sistine Chapel where Adam is kind of sitting there like this with one little finger. Maybe he's going to move and maybe he's not. And God is reaching all the way down. Please, please let me take your hand. And all we have to do is make that one little motion and we've got, God's got our hand and he can walk with us coming out of there. Neil, we've been friends for a long time. We have. And uh, I remember that the old Neil, and I, I know this new Neil, this true self, the true person that you are. And it's just uh, thrilling for me to see you uh, as a true son of God that loves you, loves yourself in the way that God loves you and, and loves everyone the same. So. Well, thank you, Bob. And, and you know what? I, I could in some ways say the same about you because I was around when you had your desert period. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. and while you weren't mean to anybody or anything, you could tell that you were struggling and, and that it was a painful period for you. You know, one of the things I want to um, uh, I, I want to say is that I, I'm going to paraphrase uh, verse 20 after John 3:16, which we all know comes this verse and I'm not sure what translation this is but it says everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed well you know that's exactly the way I was I shaved for 30 years without ever looking myself in the eye because I didn't like what I was going to see and I didn't believe that God liked me either because of all the misdeeds that I had done. And, and so once I got here and realized that this was not an angry, uh, judgmental God, but this was a loving, forgiving God, then I was able to walk away from all of that stuff. Jesus paid the price for my sins. I could take that dumpster of stuff I'd done in, in my past and get rid of it once and for all. And, and that too helped me come out of that desert, out of that wilderness period, was knowing that I was forgiven no matter what I had done. And I guess that's another thing that I would say to anybody who's struggling. Chances are you're struggling because you don't like some of the things you've done in your past. If you can forgive yourself, God's already forgiven you. All you have to do is ask. Yeah, you can clap. Somebody wanted to clap. <clears throat> you know, examples of faith in testing and in, in the going through desert experiences are crucial for a faith community, aren't they? For us to watch other people go through what Neil has gone through. And I agree that having the prayer partner, he called on us to do that, uh, to do the next right thing. Great advice. Um, also, I'm venturing to say, during my own personal desert experiences, that same with Neil, that there's also those times where it's just you and it's just God. And the enemy is right there. And he's bearing down on you. And he's lying to you like he lied to Jesus. He's trying to get you to take shortcuts. He's trying to get you to, to run from the work that God wants to do in the desert. And he's a liar. It's what he does. He's the father of lies. And there are times 
where you go into the desert after having those prayer partner experiences, after having the time in community and worship like we are here this morning, but then there, you're, then you're alone. Then it's you, and then it's Jesus, and then it's Satan. And I feel like when I'm in those times that Jesus has to become more for me than just an example. I can't just look in Luke chapter 4, like I said earlier, and just memorize scripture intellectually at that point. I've got to truly believe that Jesus went into the desert, not just to show me how to do it, but he went into the desert to be tempted and not sin. Did you hear Neil talk about all the sins of his past that he's taken and thrown it into a dumpster? When we go through our desert periods, we're not going to stand up perfectly each and every time. We haven't to this point, and we probably won't from this point. Jesus was tempted in every single way, but without sin. Do you see how Jesus has to become not just your example, a model, a template? He's got to become a savior. It's got to become personal. Let's see how Jesus comes out of this desert experience from chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. It says there, an opportune time. We see Satan come at the very end of Jesus' ministry. He enters Judas's heart to betray him. He's tempting him again in the garden, and Jesus throws himself down on the ground, and, he, and Jesus is tempted to run from the cross again. He doesn't run from the desert, and Jesus doesn't run from the cross. The enemy was not going to give up on Jesus after this, after this desert experience and those three temptations. What is your relationship with God like? This morning? Are you prepared for a desert experience in your life? Are you in the midst of a desert experience in your life? Are you ready to learn about Jesus from the places that he went as we go through Lent? Are you ready to take something up as a discipline through the season of Lent and give something up at the same time? The applications I would throw out to you would be to, to give something up for Lent, take something up. Join a new group or class in the church. There are new classes. Uh, I talked to somebody this morning, actually, that's going to join one of the new Lent classes on Sunday night. And then the Spiritual Life Retreat. If you want more information on that, just talk to Jason or Jeff Fugit. It is March 31st to April 2nd. Take some steps of faith in your daily life so that when you enter the desert, you have the strength, the spiritual strength. While all the other areas of your life might seem to be crumbling and they might seem weak, God will give you strength to resist the temptation and to trust in him. Would you pray with me? God, we are so thankful during this season of Lent as we enter into a season of preparation for the cross and resurrection of your son. We are asking for the Holy Spirit to be in this faith community, and in each one of our hearts. Draw us to salvation. Draw us to the fullness of life in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.